0: When you listen to the testimonies of Jewish people who have come to faith in Jesus the Messiah, there are often, at least in my opinion, recurrent themes that are repeated. So, if you start listening to a lot of Jewish people that have come to the Lord Jesus Christ, I think my opinion is you'll hear some recurrent themes as you hear the the testimonies. One is that many had received um, bad information as to what was in the New Testament. One man was talking about how his parents told him to not read the New Testament because it was essentially a handbook on how to persecute Jews. So he stayed away from the New Testament for a while. Other Jewish people said they expected when they opened to read the New Testament that they were going, that they were going to find something overtly Catholic. Maybe not knowing exactly what it was, but they just thought it would be rarely disconnected from the Old Testament Scriptures. And one of the things that you come to find over and over again is that Jewish people who have come to know Jesus, Yeshua, as the Messiah, that so often they will say, they were startled. They kind of braced themselves as they began to read the New Testament. Like, okay, I guess I have to do this because some people have told me I should, and maybe I will, and they braced themselves because they weren't sure what to expect. And then when they opened the Matthew chapter 1, verse 1, they were surprised to see how it began. The genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. You'll hear, at least in my opinion, Jewish people often say they were startled by that. It was a Jewish opening to the New Testament. A genealogy. Very Jewish when you go through the Old Testament Scriptures and it's talking about Jesus Christ as the son of David. The son of Abraham. These are Jewish people. One of the other recurrent themes, uh, one of my favorites to see as a matter of fact, somewhat connected to Matthew 1 verse 1, is how Jewish people respond when they first hear, or at least recall having first heard, Old Testament prophecies concerning the Messiah that they couldn't believe were in their Bible. Micah chapter 5, verse 2. One man had told a story of when he heard that the Messiah would be born in Bethlehem. He just heard that thinking that's in the New Testament somewhere. But then when he was shown that it's actually in Micah chapter 5, verse 2, he was like, The Messiah will be born where? In Bethlehem? How did that get into our Bible? And it's there. Micah chapter 5, verse 2 the Messiah would be rejected by His own people? Like that was clear. The expectation was in the Old Testament that when the Messiah came, He would not be readily received in Israel. Isaiah 53 verse 3 predicted that very clearly. Isaiah, speaking on behalf of the nation, said we hid, as it were, our faces from Him. He was despised and we did not esteem Him. Isaiah 49 verse 7 speaks of the Messiah as the one whom the nation abhors. So the Messiah was prophesied to be rejected, at least immediately, by the nation of Israel. The Messiah would have to die. And as a matter of fact, the Messiah would have to die before the temple was destroyed in 70 AD, according to Daniel chapter 9, verse 26 that Messiah would be cut off and this had to happen before AD 70. So you have a little bit of a time frame. If the Messiah was going to come, which he is, which he was according to the scriptures, he had to come before 70 AD. And the scripture prophesied that he would be cut off, that he would die. It doesn't stop there. Things that have shocked Jewish people who have come to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. He was prophesied to be a light to the Gentiles. He was prophesied to ride into Jerusalem on a donkey. Within one man's testimony, he shared of how he, quote, started a process of comparing the prophecies in the Hebrew Scriptures about the Messiah and how we're going to recognize Him and the fulfillment in Yeshua in and with the New Testament. And he went on to say, And to my amazement it matched. I became convinced first in my head and then in my heart that Yeshua is indeed the promised Messiah of our people. One woman's testimony included her recalling reading Isaiah 53. And she said, I read about the fact that he would be pierced. And that's exactly what happened to Jesus. And for the first time, the Bible came alive to me. And that's Isaiah 53. And you know, I said, how can you miss this? It's like right there. It's right there in the Scripture, in our book. And there's a sense in which that's what Peter is about to do on his Pentecost sermon, in his Pentecost sermon He's about to show the Jews who were gathered in Jerusalem. Maybe they were Jewish people like many of the Jewish people in our day who said, we've heard about Yeshua, but we don't believe in Yeshua. And he's about to show them how the Jesus that he was preaching to them is the same Jesus who was prophesied about in the Old Testament. And there's so much that could be said. He is already quoted from the Old Testament, quoted from Joel's prophecy, but now he will quote repeatedly from David in the Psalms. Before we get into the text, let's create a little bit of context as we get into our text for today. Remember, the last line of Joel's prophecy quoted by Peter, you could see that in Acts chapter 2, verse 21, read as follows. And it shall come to pass that whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. And it's as though Peter smoothly transitions from that statement to testifying to who Jesus is and what he has done. I want to show you what it's like to call upon the name of the Lord. I want to show you the Lord that you are to call upon. And so he begins, you might remember, Peter began by reminding them of what they already knew in verse 22. He told them that Jesus was a man attested by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did through him in your midst as you yourselves also know. So they didn't need a brief bio of who Jesus of Nazareth was. They didn't need a portfolio of his miracles. They knew them. And part of me wants to rehearse last week's message just to remind you of what they knew. The miracles that Jesus did. The raising of the dead. The healing of those who were sick. The opening the ears of those who were deaf. The eyes of those who were blind. And so on. Multiplying fish and loaves. Stopping the storm. They had known of these things. They had heard of these things. And Peter reminded them of that. You yourselves know them. It wasn't done in the corner. It was common knowledge. Like the religious leadership, they couldn't deny that Jesus casted out demons. They couldn't deny the fact that he healed the sick, raised the dead. Nobody was holding local meetings to explain that the miracles that he did actually didn't happen. Everybody knew they happened. They could see no longer blind Bartimaeus and say, he's healed. You can't, the, the man who was born blind in John chapter 9, like, He's healed. They knew these people were actually healed. The woman who had a 12-year issue of blood, who went to physicians all of those years and and spent basically her whole livelihood and was not made better, she in an instant was healed when she touched the hem of Jesus' garment, most likely being the tassels of his garment. And that 12-year issue of blood was stopped in a moment. These things had been heard about. They were known. And I gave you some examples last week of how people knew them. Uh, instances of we see uh, the common knowledge in the scriptures. So during Jesus' earthly ministry, the miracles that he did, this is verse 22, testified to the fact that he was the Messiah. Remember, he did miracles, which testified to the divine power behind what he did. He did wonders, which would speak to the reactions of the people. They were startled by what he did, and he did signs. These would be arrows to point to him, validating him as the promised Messiah. And then in verse 23... Peter told the people that he was crucified by their lawless hands according to the predetermined counsel, plan, and foreknowledge of God. We see that in Old Testament scriptures that prophesied of Jesus' death as well. And then in verse 24, he speaks of how Jesus' resurrection attests to the fact that he was the Messiah. So that's a little bit of the argument so far. He did miracles, he died according to the plan of God, and he was raised from the dead. But now Peter is going to build upon that resurrection statement. And you might say, how could you build upon the resurrection? Isn't the resurrection enough in itself to testify to the fact that he was the Messiah? Well, Peter's going to go go on to say, well, the resurrection was prophesied about. God had prophesied through David that his son... Would be risen from the dead. The Messiah spoke through David concerning that. So we begin in Acts chapter 2, verses 25 through 28, where we read, For David says concerning him, and now what follows is a quote from Psalm 16, verse 8, through almost the entirety of verse 11 I foresaw the Lord always before my face, for he is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore, my heart rejoiced and my tongue was glad. Moreover, my flesh also will rest in hope, for you will not leave my soul in Hades, nor will you allow your Holy One to see corruption. You have made known to me the ways of life. You will make me full of joy in your presence. Now, before we consider what Peter said, I just want to call attention to what Peter did. Peter didn't quote a single Bible verse. Nothing wrong with quoting a single Bible verse. But what does Peter do again? He quotes a lengthy portion of Scripture. He had just quoted a lengthy portion of Scripture. Joel chapter 2, verses 28 through 32. Now he quotes another lengthy portion of Scripture. Psalm 16, verses 8, through just about the entirety of verse 11, but not the entirety. He's an uneducated fisherman. And he's quoting Scripture. I say that because many of you Have ruled yourselves out of the joyful experience of Bible memorization. You've disqualified yourselves. Many of you have adopted the mantra as though it is your own I have a bad memory. And you say it with conviction and you say it with gusto as though you've had an MRI with contrast and supporting lab work to say, I've got the proof. I have a bad memory. It is diagnostically proven. I have a bad memory. And people love it. There's conviction. When people say, like, I have a bad memory, I know I have a bad memory. And they want to like hold on to it. But I want to tell you, you, you know, if, if somebody is weak, right? Let's say somebody had broken their, broke their arm, right? And they needed to get their arms stronger. What would you tell them to do? You exercise it. Right? You have a weak bicep. What are you going to do? You start exercising it. And you know if somebody does that over the course of a year, their arm is going to get stronger. You know that. You know if somebody says, I can't play the guitar, either because they've never played the guitar before or because they started and they stopped, you know and I know that if they committed to play for a half hour a day every day of the week for 52 weeks a year, we know at the end of that year they will likely very likely be better hopefully be better than when they started we just know that yet for some reason we sideline ourselves we put ourselves on the injured list some of you who know baseball you know the uh, injured list used to be the dl the disabled list and that would rule out people from being able to play in games and you could put somebody else on the roster and you wouldn't get penalized and so on penalized and so on and so many of us have ruled ourselves out of bible memorization without warrant And I just want to tell you, yes, memorizing scripture isn't easy. It isn't. And it usually doesn't happen quickly. But let Peter's example encourage you. In in a good sense, you don't have a choice. The Bible tells you, let the word of Christ dwell in your heart. The Bible doesn't say, let the word of Christ dwell in your lap. Let the word of Christ dwell in your iPhone or your Android. The Bible tells you, let the word of Christ dwell in your heart. You don't have a choice. Bad memory or not. Whatever the supposed MRI that you've conceived in your mind says or not, you are called to do what you can to hide the living and inspired Word of God in your heart. Let Peter's example encourage you. Let it inspire you. And if you put yourself on the injured list, I'm encouraging you to take yourself off the injured list right now. And start with a little bit. And enjoy it. So that the Holy Spirit might bring it to your memory at just the right time so that it might be used in your life And in the lives of others, even as he used it in Peter's life and in the lives of those who were gathered there, it was there. He had memorized it, and the Spirit of God brought it to remembrance in that moment and used it. Amazing. So that's what Peter did. Let's learn from Peter's example, but now let's hear what Peter said. This is amazing. This is Peter's next line of evidence. Jesus' ministry proved that he was the Messiah. Implicitly, Jesus' death proved he was the Messiah. Implicitly, Jesus' resurrection proved he was the Messiah. And now he's going to give another line of evidence. Old Testament prophecy witnesses to the fact that Jesus is the Messiah. You know, opponents might have said or thought, Jesus died as a criminal. Like, how, how could we believe in him? He died in between two other malefactors, two other criminals. How could we believe in him? Now, Peter could have quoted Isaiah 53 verse 9, which said that the Messiah would have his grave made with the wicked, yet at the same time with the rich at his death. He could have went there. He could have said, look, remember, Jesus died among criminals. His grave was made with the wicked. Isaiah 53.9 said that would happen. But remember, he didn't stay among the grave of the common criminal. He was taken down by Joseph of Arimathea, and he was put in a rich man's tomb. He, Isaiah 53.9, so specific, fulfilled in Jesus' death and in his burial. Could have went there. But I went there so that you can know that that's a place he could have went. But instead he goes, amazingly so, led of the Holy Spirit, to point out how Jesus' death was connected with the predicted resurrection of the Messiah. Let's just walk through this text together. In the beginning of verse 25, uh, Peter says, For David says concerning him. So I want you to note, right there at the beginning of verse 25, the word for. It's telling you that this is an explanatory statement. What is it explaining? Verse 24, death couldn't hold him. There's a bunch of reasons why death couldn't hold him, right? In him was life. He had done no sin and so on. But the immediate reason Peter is saying is because God had promised that he would be raised. That's the connection. For David says concerning him that he wouldn't be in the grave. His body would not experience corruption. We'll see that as we walk through this together. Verse 25, second half of it says, quoting from uh, the Septuagint, Greek translation of the Old Testament, I foresaw the Lord always before my face, for he is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Okay, now, there is a question as to how best to understand these words. When Peter says, for David says concerning him, there are really two options among interpreters here. Uh, both are great options. Option number one is that David is saying that he always foresaw the Lord speaking of Christ before his face. He saw the Lord Jesus as it were. He lived with a sense that the Messiah who would come would rise from the grave and would be at his right hand as a protector and he would not be shaken and so on. That's option number one. I think option number two is more likely. That this is one of those Old Testament texts, like what we see in the servant songs, some of the servant songs of Isaiah, where the Messiah is speaking through David, and David knows that this isn't about him, that this is about his promised descendant. I think that's what's happening here. So option two would be something like this. The Messiah is speaking through David. It is the son saying that he lived with the father always before his face. And so with the father at his right hand, as a defender and a protector, as it were, he would not be shaken. Now, there could be overlap between the two, but if you have to say which one is most likely, in light of where Peter goes when he interprets this psalm, I would say that is the ultimate right there. That is the Messiah speaking through. But there could be measures of overlap. We're going to learn a lot as we briefly walk through this. Watch this. You're going to get Christian living instruction from Old Testament prophecy right here. Verse 26 says, Therefore my heart rejoiced, and my tongue was glad. Very literally there, my tongue leapt very much. It's like, say, my tongue was so excited, my tongue was so glad, it was like it was leaping for joy. Moreover, my flesh also will rest in hope. The language there is powerful too. The resting is a Greek word that speaks of literally pitching a tent. It's like, I will pitch my tent upon hope in light of such precious promises. So I want you to see here, Look at the connection between verse 26 and verse 25 and you could see some of the blessed results of living with God's presence in one's immediate line of sight. The Hebrew text of Psalm 16.8 says, I have set the Lord or Yahweh always before me because he's at my right hand. I will not be moved. I will not be shaken. And I just want to give you a little bit of Christian living counsel in light of what we see the Messiah saying here through David. If you have anxieties before your face all the time, if you have worries before your face all the time, do not be surprised if your heart is not glad, if your tongue is complaining instead of rejoicing, and if you're not resting in hope. See, so much of our Christian life is determined by what we set before our faces. Maybe very literally with the TV or with the phone or whatever, but in our mind's eye as well. What are you continuously setting before your mind's eye? What is before your face? And I think if we look at the instruction here implicitly, I think we'd want to follow in the footsteps of David and more explicitly the Messiah. He always saw the Father before his face. You know the Son did. Therefore, what happened as a result of that? His heart was glad, his tongue rejoiced, and his flesh rested in hope. Now, let's just think, let's just imagine if, the, if, if, if David was saying this, right? If David is saying this just from his own perspective as well, even as the Messiah is speaking through him. I like what John Phillips uh, wrote when he said the following, David was so good a singer because he was so great a seer. There is nothing like a glimpse of heaven's viewpoint to put a hallelujah in the heart. To know that in Christ, God has conquered not only sin and Satan, but the sepulcher as well, should ring the joy bells in each believing heart. So if you imagine David saying this, right? So even as the Messiah is speaking through him, perhaps David at the same time, thinking of living with a sense of the Messiah who would come and overcome death, no wonder he would sing. No wonder why his tongue would rejoice. To quote again from Phillips, uh, to consider Jesus's vantage point, the primary reference is to the body of Christ lying in the grave. Jesus knew he was going to be crucified. He also knew he would not see corruption, and in the grave, in the grave, and that he would rise again the third day. On a number of occasions, he foretold those things to his disciples. As a man, his confidence was in the word of God, which he implicitly believed. However, by extension, the truth was David's, too, and ours. My flesh shall rest in hope. Christ's resurrection is the guarantee of ours. And so I just want to remind you, son or daughter of God, please be careful with what you are thinking about. Please grow in the grace of taking thoughts captive Pull the plug on thoughts that are fanning the flame of angst or anxiety or fear or worry or complaining or bitterness or clamoring or wrath, whatever it might be. Pull the plug on that quickly. I thought um, of—I often think of my my cousin JoJo because I know she likes um, peanuts and the old Charlie Brown comic strips and the cartoon and so on. There was a a Charlie Brown comic strip where Linus Brown, uh, Linus Brown, they're brothers, you didn't know that, but they're actually, uh, where where Linus told Charlie Brown, you look kind of depressed, Charlie Brown. And Charlie Brown responded by saying, I worry about school a lot. I also worry about worrying so much about school. My anxieties have anxieties. And you know that feeling. I, I know, if not all of you, then most of you do. And here, in the quotation of Psalm 16, you have a messianic reminder of a remedy. Don't put those things before your mind's eye. Fight to put the Lord before your mind's eye. Jesus has conquered the grave. And your resurrection is assured because his resurrection is accomplished. Well, uh, back to the text Why would David, and ultimately the Messiah, uh, why would his flesh rest in hope? Verse 27 reads, For you will not leave my soul in Hades, nor will you allow your Holy One to see corruption. So notice the word for, it's an explanatory statement. My flesh will rest in hope. right? So ultimately, I would argue the Messiah speaking through David here, and saying my flesh will rest in hope, because I know you're not going to leave my soul in Hades. Hades can have negative connotations. Generally, it's the New Testament equivalent of the Old Testament word sheol. Generally speaking, it's the place of the dead. And then very specifically here, David wrote, Messiah speaking through him, nor will you allow your Holy One to see corruption. Now, if you remember, when I taught on Psalm 16, if you go through Psalm 16, this is, in my opinion, a climactic pronoun change right here. You go through Psalm 16 and just do it on your own, maybe a little bit later on, and look at all the my statements and all the I statements. So even for an Old Testament Jewish person who wasn't seeing through the lenses that Peter had on to interpret this, you would look at the psalm and you would say, it's all about David, so so you think, my, 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 until you get to verse 10 and all of a sudden it changes from my to your, from my soul to your holy one. So even from an Old Testament Jewish perspective, you could look at the psalm and say, It's messianic. Peter is now exposing how messianic it is, unpacking it more, showing that not only did the second half of verse 10 speak of Christ, but the first half as well. It's a climactic portion of text here. Notice also, I would tell you that the title Holy One is a messianic term. Remember, even the demons knew Jesus as the Holy One of God. You see that in places like Mark 1.24, Luke 4.34. Remember that Peter said, we can't go nowhere else. Who else has the words of life? And he acknowledged Jesus to be the Holy One. John six sixty-eight and verse 69. But then Peter's going to call attention to how you know the Messiah is being spoken about because David's body was still in the grave. David's body had decayed. More about that in a moment. But here's the last portion that he quotes from Psalm 16. And I think there is such Christian living instruction for us in what's quoted and also in the rest of it that's not. You have made known to me the ways of life. You will make me full of joy in your presence. The phrase ways of life that's used here, in the Hebrew text it's singular, path of life. Given the context, the idea appears to be that the soul would not be abandoned to the place of the dead because the resurrection in God's presence would be forever. The Messiah knew the ways of life and the path of life before Him. And I would just say to us, so we should know the path of life that is before us. So even in light of forthcoming death, the Messiah, speaking through David, was assured of resurrection and knew that God had made known, the Father to the Son in His humanity, made known to Him the ways of life, and He knew on the other side of death would be joy. Remind you of Hebrews. For the joy set before Him, He endured the cross Part of that joy would be being back in the presence of the Father, having the the glory that He had with the Father from before the creation of the world restored, but now this time as the exalted God-man. But I do want to remind you here of what Peter doesn't include. There's the last line of Psalm 16 in verse 11, at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Why didn't Peter include that? I don't think it's any mystery. He just wasn't carried along by the Holy Spirit to do so because he was making a point of Jesus' resurrection being prophesied. But I just want to call attention to that for you because I think it will be helpful. Have you ever thought of all the joys that you experience in this life? Every pleasure that you experience in this life as a kind of token of the grace of God that provides you with a little foretaste of infinite joy and pleasures to come? I would encourage you to think that way. Every hug that you enjoy. Every bit of good night of sleeping that you enjoy. Every bit of filet mignon. (laughs) I haven't had some in a while, but I remember how much I enjoy it when I do, if it's a good piece of steak. A refreshing glass of water. Being in love. Physical intimacy. Hearing the word of God preached and unpacked. Joy in prayer. Playing sports. Moving your body. You know like when you're sick and you're like, man, I just wish I could move my body better. I wish my whole body didn't feel weak. And then you just feel so well when you're like, I feel well, I can move my body and it's not getting achy and things like that. All these things that could lead to joy. Playing music, hearing music, Seeing your children, seeing children that are dear to you, smile and laugh, a refreshing shower, a good night's sleep, whatever it is, think of all the joys, all the pleasures that God has given you. This gracious God has given to sinful humanity, enjoy all of these pleasures and they are tokens and foretastes of infinite pleasures that continue to flow from his right hand forevermore. That's what awaits the people of God. See, sometimes I think Christians won't acknowledge this. They won't talk about these kind of things, which is why I'm excited in the eschatology teaching that we're going to be doing on Thursday nights to talk about the subject of heaven. I think Christians are kind of quiet about the fact that they just don't think heaven's going to be as good as it is now. You wouldn't want to talk about it, but you say, I mean, it's just not, it's going to be different. It's going to be different. I mean, there's no marriage or giving of marriage in heaven. And just think of like how some of the greatest joys in life are connected with, like say, having children and stuff. And Christians, I think, you kind of probe deep. You start to talk to them about these kind of things. I think a lot of Christians are afraid that God had, like, the, you know, the first album was a big hit. You know? But the next album just doesn't reach, like, the second, the first, the first album. That's happened sometimes, right? I know even with Christian bands. Like, some, some years back, there was a Christian band that came out with an album that was, like, epic. I was like, oh, it's so good. Every song is so good. So excited for the second album. And then I was so disappointed. There was like two good songs on it. And then the third album was even worse. Not so much sound doctrine on it, and so on. And I think sometimes Christians think that's what heaven is going to be like. It's going to be kind of a letdown. Like this is great: marriage, giving of marriage, children, all of these things here. And, and heaven's going to be like really ethereal and kind of creepy to some degree. But we'll all be okay with the creepiness of it, and so on. It's not like that. The Creator who made you and knows what pleases you has holy, joyful pleasures for you to enjoy forevermore. They keep coming from His right hand. And I think you and I should be fired up about that. Please do not forget who the proprietor of heaven is. Please do not forget who the proprietor of the new heavens and new earth is. The God who has so graciously furnished you with tokens of pleasure to enjoy in a fallen frame, in a fallen earth, despite the fact that we are fallen and sinful. What will it be like to enjoy pleasures in a perfect environment? With His presence being enjoyed with uninterrupted communion with God and with saints and angels, what will it be like to enjoy those pleasures forevermore? Thanks be to God. Okay, now back to what Peter's doing here. Because now Peter's going to explain. I have given you a little bit of unpacking some Christian living applications of Peter's words there as he quotes Psalm 16. But let's see what Peter does with it, okay? Peter quoted Psalm 16, by memory, verses 8 through most of 11, and now he's going to apply it. Beginning at verse 29, reading through verse 31, men and brethren, so remember he's talking to Jewish, a Jewish audience, brethren, right? Men and brethren, his fellow Jewish people, Let me speak freely to you. That word freely could be rendered as boldly or confidently. So this is what he's basically saying. Men and brethren, he's calling their attention again. And he's telling them, I want to speak boldly, freely, and confidently to you. Of the patriarch David. That he is both dead and buried. And his tomb is with us to this day. And you can imagine all the people there being like, "Uh uh-huh, yep. He's right. David is in the tomb. David is with us. Now, I don't know where exactly it was. There's some debate about the initial location, but they all knew where it was. They knew where David's body was. I don't know if there were tourist visits to it or people could like, lay flowers by it. I don't know any of that, but I, knew, I know that they all knew where it was. And so he's saying David's body, dead and buried. It's still there. You want to go see where it is? You can go to it. It's in the tomb. And then he goes on and he says, Therefore, being a prophet. You might say, David was a prophet? thought David was a king. David was a king. And he was also a prophet. He was a prophet. Uh, he spoke in 2 Samuel 23, verse 2. He spoke about the Spirit of the Lord speaking by him and the Spirit of the Lord's words on his tongue. Jesus, we see this in the Gospel of Mark, for instance. Mark chapter 12, verse 36. He said that David spoke in the Holy Spirit. Jesus said that there were things written about him in the book of the Psalms Luke twenty four verse forty four. Many of which were written by David, the writer of Hebrews, said the Holy Spirit spoke through David. Hebrews chapter four verse seven. Just earlier in Acts chapter one verse sixteen, Peter said that David foretold the events that would be happening concerning Judas because the Holy Spirit foretold those events through David's mouth. Acts chapter one verse sixteen. So there was a clear witness. That David was not only a king, but he was a prophet, even as Peter is saying here. So back to verse 30. Therefore, being a prophet, and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that of the fruit of his body, according to the flesh, he would raise up the Christ to sit on his throne. You know what he's doing there? He's basically quoting scripture again. He's quoting Psalm 132, verse 11, basically which reads the Lord or Yahweh has sworn in truth to David he will not turn from it i will set upon your throne the fruit of your body he's implicitly referencing what's known as the davidic covenant second samuel chapter 7 verses 12 through 16 that god promised that from david's lineage one of david's descendants would sit on the throne and ultimately forever So here's what Peter is saying. Therefore, being a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that of the fruit of his body, according to the flesh, he would raise up the Christ to sit on the throne, he, foreseeing this, spoke concerning the resurrection of the Christ, that his soul was not left in Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. So he's saying, next line of evidence, David prophesied that Jesus would rise from the grave. David knew he was going to be in the grave, and he didn't speak about himself. He spoke about his greater descendant who would come. His body did not see corruption. That word corruption speaks of decay, right? What happens when a body is in a grave for a long time? It decomposes. It breaks down. But the Messiah, his body would not experience decay. Why? Because he wouldn't be in the grave that long. He'd be raised on the third day. So there's the next line of evidence. But there's more, you have to love what Peter's doing. He's giving them so much evidence, and it's just flowing out of him. He's quoting Scripture, he's implicitly referencing Scripture. And I love this, verse 32. "This Jesus, God has raised up, of which we are all witnesses." You see the next line of evidence, don't you? I witness testimony. You all saw the miracles that He did. Verse 22, he died according to the predetermined plan of God. Verse 23, he was raised from the dead. Verse 24, he was raised from the dead in fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy. Verses 25 through 28, and then he explains it in verse 32. The next line of evidence, eyewitness testimony. And you have to love this. Now, eyewitness testimony, as you know, you don't need me to tell you, it's known to be one of the most reliable pieces of evidence in, say, civil cases or criminal cases. Um, to be sure an eyewitness can be wrong, right? An eyewitness can get something wrong and you know, have, there are instances where an eyewitness said something and then it was later disproven by, say, DNA evidence or something like that. So that can happen, which is, I think, part of the reason why is a safeguard against that. In the Old Testament law, you were told that one witness was not enough. If you were going to prosecute somebody for something, you needed two or three witnesses. Deuteronomy chapter 19, verse 15, talks about the facts of a case being established upon the testimony of two or three witnesses. Now again, you've got to love this. Peter is speaking to a Jewish crowd. They're familiar with that. Witness language? They have to go to the Old Covenant law. Two or three witnesses, enough to establish a prosecution, let's say. How many witnesses were there to the resurrection? Peter's saying, hey, look, we, we are all witnesses. So you know he's speaking of himself. You know he's speaking of the 12, right? So you got at least 12 who are witnesses. Among the 120, doubtless there were witnesses among the 120, maybe all of the 120. And we know, according to 1 Corinthians 15, that at least 500 people saw Jesus at once post-resurrection. The Old Testament standard, two or three witnesses. How many did God furnish for his resurrected son? At least 500. Amazing. And Peter's saying there, look, we, are, we are witnesses. Himself, the apostles, and doubtless those among the 120, if not the entirety of the 120. Amazing. How much more evidence? How much more evidence is needed? And ultimately, no amount of evidence will be enough apart from the working of the Holy Spirit. Well, Peter has one more line of evidence before his concluding statement. He's going to connect Jesus' resurrection with Jesus' ascension. He says verse 33, Therefore, being exalted to the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Spirit, he poured out this which you now see and hear. So if somebody was wondering, where is Jesus right now? Like when Peter was preaching that sermon, Peter's telling them where he was. He was intimately involved with the events of Pentecost. You think the Holy Spirit just came? No, no, no. Jesus, having received the promise of the Father, He's the one who poured out the gift of the Holy Spirit upon you. So if you're wondering where He is, He's right there exalted at the right hand of God. More about that in a moment. But that's where He was, and He was intimately connected with the events of Pentecost. A quick pastoral theological aside that I think is important for you to understand. So, as I've taught on in our Doctrine of God class, we believe that God is eternally Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And if you were to understand the relations of origin, as it's often described, you would say that the Son is eternally begotten of the Father. And you would say that the Holy Spirit proceeds from the Father and the Son. See, sometimes in Christians' minds, they have this understanding of the Holy Spirit kind of proceeding from the Father and the Son as though they were two separate funnels. Like the Holy Spirit proceeds from the Father and from the Son and from these two separate funnels comes the Holy Spirit. It's not the way to properly understand the person of the Holy Spirit. I'll explain a little bit how this is connected to the text in a moment. But even as the Son is the image of the invisible God, even as He is the Word of the Father, right? Look at the imagery here. That the Son having received from the Father... The gift of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out that which you now see and hear. There's a statement in Trinitarian theology that I've talked about in the Doctrine of God class, and I think it's accurate, that sendings reveal processions. The idea would be something like this. When you look at who sent Jesus into the world, was it the Father and the Spirit? It's the Father. The Father sent Jesus into the world. Not the Father and the Holy Spirit, Why? Because that sending of the Son reveals, I would argue, something about the eternal nature of God. That Jesus is the eternally begotten Son of the Father. The Father is unbegotten, and the Son is eternally begotten of the Father. So it makes sense that the Son would be sent by the Father. And then you say, okay, who sends the Holy Spirit? If you look in John chapter 14, for instance, John chapter 14, verse 26... Jesus said the Father would send the Holy Spirit. You look in John 15.26, Jesus said He would send the Holy Spirit. You look here in Acts 2.33, you see how it works out. That the Son, having received from the Father the gift of the Holy Spirit, He's poured out that which you now see and hear. The sendings reveal, if you will, the processions. The Son eternally begotten of the Father and the Spirit proceeding from the Father and the Son. I think it's amazing. I've told you there's so much more I could say about that. It helps you understand more of who your God is. You don't want to lose the Trinity. The Trinity is not like a small like, incidental doctrine that you can either believe or not believe. It's who your God is. If you don't have a Trinitarian God, you don't believe in the one true God. If you believe that God is like you know, the modalist God who puts on the mask of the Father and then puts on the mask of the Son then puts on the mask of the Holy Spirit, He plays different roles at different times, so He's one in essence and one in person. You don't have the one true God. You're worshiping a different God. The one true God of the Bible eternally exists simultaneously in three distinct persons. And if you want to understand the beauty of that, you take some of the imagery that I just communicated to you, right? The Son is the Word of the Father. He's the image of the invisible God. The Holy Spirit is not another Son. There's only one Son, the eternally begotten Son of the Father. But the Spirit proceeds from the Father and the Son, which is why He's called the Spirit of God, and yet called the Spirit of Christ, which is, which is why He's called the Spirit of the Father, but also called the Spirit of Jesus this gets me so excited. I hope I hope you're excited in your hearts. I can't tell so much. I see some faces that I, I know are excited. I'm hoping there's a lot of excitement that's in there because it makes me just want to worship him when I think about who he is. And whatever glimpses we get of his Trinitarian beauty now, imagine what it's going to be like to be before the throne. Um, but you're getting a glimpse of it, I would argue, in verse 33. I think you're getting a little bit of a glimpse. But let's see the argument, right? So basically, um, Peter is saying, you want to know where Jesus is? He's at the right hand of the Father right now. He's connected to this day of Pentecost, and that's connected with prophesied Old Testament Scripture as well. Verses 34 and 35. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he says himself, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. What's Peter doing? Quoting Scripture again quoting scripture again. And he is quoting the most often quoted Old Testament text right here. Psalm 110, verse 1, is the most often quoted Old Testament text in the New Testament. Now there's so much that I could say about this psalm. Uh, I could remind you of how Jesus used this psalm during the, or near the end of his earthly ministry. You might remember that he asked a question to the Pharisees. They were asking him all kinds of questions, and he had a question for them. He said, what do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? And they responded to him. They're thinking, this is easy. This is a slam dunk. This is a layup. This is an underhand toss. They say, easy. Well, they, may, they might have said easy. I don't know if they said easy, but they probably thought easy. They said, the son of David. And they were right. But then Jesus asked them, how then does David in the spirit call him Lord? Saying, the Lord said unto my Lord, sit at my right hand, till I make your enemies your footstool. See Jesus was calling attention to the mysterious nature of the Messiah that he would be one who preceded David and was greater because usually in that Jewish lineage, right, the father is greater. Father Abraham is greater in a certain sense than his descendants. So Jesus is asking, how does David call his descendant Lord? That doesn't work the way we normally think that works. The implication is his greater descendant not only would proceed from him, being of his lineage, he preceded him, which is what you see Jesus essentially say in Revelation twenty two sixteen, "I am the root and the offspring of David." So I could say that about this text, which I just did because I wanted you to know about that. I want you to see why um, um, Peter is referencing that here. He's like, "Look, David isn't talking about himself." You know he's not talking about himself. Cool thing in the Hebrew text that you don't pick up in our New Testaments or even in the Greek language when it says here, um, the Lord said to my Lord, many of you are familiar with this, but I'll remind you briefly, that in the Hebrew you have two separate words for Lord. Two separate words for Lord. And our text communicates it by having one in all capitals and the second one with just a capital L. The way it literally would read in the Hebrew text would be, Yahweh said to my Adonai. And so Jesus is calling attention to the fact that Peter was identif- uh, that David was identifying somebody as his Lord, but somebody distinct from, in this case, the Father. And that was the Messiah. So Peter is referencing that here, to quote Old Testament prophecy, to prove the ascension of the Lord Jesus Christ." He's showing them how it all fits together. He came and did miracles. He came and died. He came and arose. That was in fulfillment of scripture. We all saw him. We're all witnesses. And he's at the right hand of God. And if you don't think that's scriptural, let me show you it's scriptural. So he quotes Psalm 110 to speak of the Messiah being at the right hand of the Father. And a witness to the fact that Jesus was at the right hand of the Father was the outpouring of the Holy Spirit that happened on that day at Pentecost. So he's given him so many evidences, so many pieces of evidence, and he brings it together with this kind of concluding statement in verse 36. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God has made this Jesus whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. So therefore, he's pulling it all together. I've made the case. I've shown you. Let all the house of Israel know, all the family of Israel, the nation of Israel, and so on. Let them know assuredly, beyond a shadow of a doubt, seeing by the grace of God how the Messiah's fulfillments, prophecies, were fulfilled in Jesus Christ. He's calling them to believe the evidence that God has so furnished them and us with. Peter wasn't asking them to believe secrets whispered to him in a cave. He wasn't calling them to give their lives for some esoteric and unfounded philosophy. I mean, if you go through the history of philosophy and you see what people believed... I mean your heart will be served with compassion, but you'll say, wow, the, the, the New Testament scriptures, in fulfillment of Old Testament scriptures, they're in a league of its own. I mean, imagine like looking at somebody like Thales, this well-known Greek philosopher who is known for the statement, all is water. I'm not calling you here to believe today, all is water. I mean, evidence would testify against all being water, that there's no, that the root of all existence is founded fundamentally in water. But that's what Thales was calling people to. It was a big deal in Greek philosophical history. You're called to believe that Jesus is Lord in Christ, and God has furnished you with an abundance of evidence to believe that. Prophecies made 1,000 years and earlier about his dying and rising and ascending Peter had appropriate, logical, spirit-wrought, and evidence-based certainty. I just want to make a quick statement here because I think it's helpful. Notice, if you were there listening to Peter, one of the things that you are hearing is conviction. You're hearing conviction, strong assurance of what he's preaching. In the wishy-washy world in which we live, we're having conviction on certain things. Biblical truths especially is kind of seen as offensive. Be more diplomatic. Hold out extended possibilities. Everything's a possibility. We don't know about this. We don't know about that. I want you to see a man set forth here that had conviction. And you are called to be people who have conviction in the living and inspired Word of God and what it teaches. I'm reminded of the story of the British uh, philosopher David Hume who, as the story goes, he had seen a friend one morning as he was walking down the street or so on, and he asked a friend where he was going, and he said he was going to hear George Whitfield preach. And Hume said to the man, you don't believe what Whitfield preaches, do you? And the man responded saying something like, no, but he does. As though to say, even then, it's rare to see somebody with conviction who's actually going to preach and teach the Word of God, not just as a doctrine that they heard or they grew up with, but something that they passionately believe. So I don't know how tenaciously you are holding on to these truths that Peter is preaching, but I ask you not just to hear Peter saying them, but to own them, as it were, as your own. Do you hold on to this text and say, Jesus is the Messiah. Look at all the miracles that he did, that was prophesied about through Isaiah and others in the Old Testament. He's the Messiah. He died in fulfillment of the Scriptures. He rose in fulfillment of the Scriptures. He was buried in fulfillment of the Scriptures. Prophecy had pointed to him ascending to the right hand of the Father. Hold it with conviction. Please don't just entertain it from a distance. One of the things that you hear in a lot of the testimonies of Jewish people who came to faith in the Lord Jesus as Messiah, they heard things going on in synagogue and it felt so distant to them. Just knowledge that they knew but couldn't own as their own. And the scary thing is that can happen in New Testament churches as well. That you could hear this and then you could just be distracted. You could be thinking about somebody else. So you could be like, I wish he told more stories. Tell more jokes. Tell more this. Tell more that. I'm telling you to hold on to the word of God with conviction. Because at the end of the day, that is the difference maker in your life. By the grace of God, you, by the grace of God, holding on to these truths. And what I'd want you to remember more than anything else are these truths in the Scripture so that you could communicate to them communicate them to others and hold them preciously and tenaciously in your own life. Have conviction. Peter is an example of that. says to them very clearly, Let all the house of Israel know assuredly, no doubt, beyond a shadow of a doubt, that God has made this Jesus whom you crucified. And again, he's not scared to let them know that they're guilty. So let me follow in his footsteps and just remind everyone in this room, we are all guilty before a holy God. Every single one of us. You, if you do not know the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, if you have not come to him, the difference between you and those who have is that you will have to pay for your sins against the holy God and you will never exhaust the payment That's why the Bible teaches of this place called the Lake of Fire, where payment continues and continues and continues because it cannot be exhausted. You have sinned against the Holy God. But God in His grace has made a way for your punishment to be exhausted because Christ Jesus has satisfied the debt that you owe. So if you are in Christ, rejoice in that. And if you are not, may that be true of you. And may you receive that gracious gift um, quick note here, and then we'll get to the close. Um, the note here would be this. When it says that God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ, the idea there is that God, having installed, this is the language I would encourage you to hold on to, having installed Jesus at his right hand, he has exalted him to the highest place. Think of Philippians 2, right? Jesus humbled himself. He took the form of of a servant. He humbled himself to the point of death, even death on the cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and given him a name that is above every name. That at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow of those in heaven on earth and under the earth. And every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That language that you see Peter using here that God has made this Jesus whom you crucified both Lord and Christ isn't saying that Jesus wasn't deity from eternity past. He was the eternally begotten Son of God. It didn't mean that he wasn't the Messiah at his birth. Didn't mean that. Even during his earthly ministry, Peter said you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. But the idea here is that he has been now installed and recognized as the God man, gloriously installed at the right hand of the Father, declared to be Lord and Christ. And then the question is what do you do with that? And the hope would be if you haven't, that you would receive Jesus Christ as Messiah, as Lord, that you would see him as Savior and as the one through whom your sins could be forgiven. yeah, you weren't in that crowd that day, but you are in the crowd right now. And the hope of the Gospel is that you can have forgiveness of sins by receiving the gift of God in the Lord Jesus Christ, believing that He died for you, and that He rose from the grave, and that He is the promised Son of God, the Messiah. And if you are in Christ, I would just encourage you afresh today to sanctify Jesus Christ in your heart as Lord. Set Him apart afresh in your heart as Lord. Whatever it's going to look like for you to live under Jesus' Lordship afresh today, is it going to look like you committing your mornings to Him? Commit your mornings to Him. Is it going to be you afresh taking your thoughts captive because He is your Lord? Is it going to be you wanting not the house of Israel to know, maybe the house of Israel to know, but everybody that you know, you want them to know that Jesus is both Lord and Christ? That's one of the ways you live under His Lordship. Sanctify Jesus in your heart as Lord. Live in light of His Lordship. And that is a great way for you who have come to know Christ to apply the beauty of this text and the message that's preached. But we'll get to the reaction. So the people hear that and appropriately by the grace of God they say, what shall we do? We'll consider that question and we'll consider what they did Lord willing next week. Let's pray. Father, thank You for your word. Thank you for the abundance of testimony and instruction for Christian living in our lives, Lord. Thank you, Father, for the living word of God. I pray, Father, for your people in this place that the pieces of evidence that the Holy Spirit brought to Peter's mind and the scriptures that came to Peter's remembrance, I pray, Father, that you would help those points and or those scriptures be hidden in the hearts of your people for their own nourishment, for their own edification, so as to deepen the roots of conviction. Father, may it be. May you prepare those, uh, those of your people in this place to be prepared to declare why you have fully declared to be the, uh, Jesus, to be the Lord and the Christ. Help them, Lord, help us, to be ready to give that reason for the hope that is within us as to why your word has made clear that He is the predicted and promised Lord in Christ. Father, I pray in some of the practical areas of our lives that you would just help us to have the Lord um, before our eyes, to have your Son set before our eyes, to have your truth set before our eyes. There's so many things that could so easily be set before our eyes, Lord. Worries or anxieties, Lord. Help us to live in light of the fact that at your right hand are pleasures forevermore, all of which has been secured for your people through the shed blood of your Son and his victorious resurrection. And if there be anybody in this place who hasn't come to that place, Lord, may the same Holy Spirit who opened the eyes of 3,000 on that day, may they open, may the eyes of such ones open as a result of His ministry, perhaps even now, as they become convinced in their hearts that Jesus is the Savior and Lord in Christ. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.